This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. I had a telephone call this morning from uh, a journalist who's preparing an article for a magazine. And uh, he said, I'm calling you about the fact that uh, people seem to be uh, uh, mixing and matching religions these days. (laughs) They're uh, inventing religions. He he said, uh, these are salad religions, he called them. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. He said, "Uh, do you think it's good or bad? I said, I don't know. I said, I didn't even know they were doing that. <laughs> I said, but if they are, I could think of two reasons why they might be um, good reasons. One of them is a very uh, uniquely American reason. Eric Erickson would have liked this reason. He said, Americans have um, frontier cowboy mentality. They do things by themselves. Uh, out on the range, they explore, they go out somewhere into the hinterlands and they make up how they should live all by themselves. And it's a kind of uh, real heroism and wonderful and uniquely American. And I said the other reason is probably that uh, uh, it's a sign of an uh, an increased awareness, both in this country and I think worldwide, in a kind of um, lack of spiritu- real spirituality. I said, I think that people have discovered that materialism and consumerism are not working to make them happy. And that what they yearn for is some really close and intimate connection with their lives in a way that their lives become both meaningful and uh, sacred. And uh, if... Um, they didn't get from their parents or their community a way to relate to um, the sacred in life or the truth in life, they'll go out and look for it for themselves. So he said, do you think it's good or bad, though? (laughs) So I said, I don't know. And he said, but is it dangerous? So I said, well, I could see one possible pitfall and one possible uh, shortcoming. And he said, what are they? And I said, well, the pitfall is that in a solo practice, we don't have anybody to give us any feedback. We don't have anybody to tell us encouragement, you're doing well. We don't have anyone to tell us if we're deluding ourselves. We don't have anybody who can tell us that Nothing is happening. He said, what do you mean, nothing is happening? (laughs) What's supposed to happen? (laughs) So 
So I think I exclaimed with some vigor, I said, we're supposed to become transformed. That's the real point of practice. At least it is for me. It's not enough to be relaxed and it's not enough to feel good. It's not even enough to feel connected to my experience. All that is great, but it's only half of the job that we do. We relax, we connect deeply with our experience, and then we see what's true. And we see quite clearly the truth of suffering, of universal suffering, regardless of circumstances. And we're transformed by our vision, by our understanding, from self-serving and trapped in our small and limited stories to really other-serving, to great kindness and compassion. I think I said it a little bit more fierily to him on the telephone. Actually, I thought to myself, look at that, Sylvia, in 30 seconds you've gone from mild-mannered grandmother to thundering preacher. (laughs) So then I toned it back down again. He was impressed, though. He said, very good. (laughs) I deeply believe that this is what it's about. I have a very simple seven-sentence, seven-word dharma. When we see clearly, we behave impeccably. That's it. That's the whole dharma. I believe it. I'm sure that if we really saw clearly how fragile, how fleeting, how ephemeral everything and everyone is, and if we really saw clearly the fact that our sense of being separate from each other is a mirage, it's a mistake. It's what Einstein called an optical delusion, that rather than being separate from each other, we are all connected to each other. Everything is connected to each other. If I move my hand here, a candle flame tilts in Tibet. It's all connected. If I really saw, if we really saw the depth of suffering in the world, not only the suffering, the pain that's inherent in having a body and having relationships, which by their very nature, temporal, fragile, are bound to end, but the extra suffering that we cause with ignorance, with greed and with hatred and delusion, we would be so heartbroken into compassion, we would not add a single extra drop of pain into an already groaning world. We just wouldn't do it. I believe it. If we see, when we see clearly, we behave impeccably. Impeccability is the hallmark of the ten perfections, the ten qualities of mind, the ten characteristics of the heart that the Buddha is said to have embodied. I used to say when I taught refuges, when I take refuge in the Buddha, it gives me great courage to think that the Buddha, who was a regular human being, could become enlightened, and so I could too. I don't say that exactly anymore. I don't say he was a regular human being. I say he was a real human being, but not exactly regular. That According to legend and according to what he taught, he had over many lifetimes perfected 
these particular ten qualities of heart and mind so that they were quite fully developed in him. I don't know when I say over many lifetimes or when I read over many lifetimes that it really means over many lifetimes or whether it means over many experiences in a lifetime. That's not so important to me. For me, the sense of that teaching of the many lifetimes of work that it takes is it takes a very, very long time to become perfectly generous, perfectly moral, perfectly patient, perfectly honest, perfectly wise, perfectly friendly, perfectly equanimous, all ten of them. And I deeply trust that human beings have that capacity, that they are born with those qualities. Don't have to find them. They are the context of our heart. And that what practice is about is removing the veils that keep them hidden, that keep them from manifesting fully. That practice is about seeing through the confusing habits of mind that keep them from manifesting fully. I think that human beings can do it. There are things that human beings can't do. They can't fly without an airplane, Doesn't, no matter how hard they try. They cannot, like sea otters, hold their breath for five minutes underwater. It's not part of the human apparatus. I think it is part of the human apparatus to be generous and moral and to practice restraint and to be wise and to be patient and to act energetically and to tell the truth and to be steadfast and loyal and friendly and equanimous. We can do it. That's what this is about. It's about doing it not through dint of will, but through seeing clearly the truth of how things are. We've all experienced these ten qualities. They're part of everybody's heart and mind. We perhaps know that we have some more firmly established than others. I actually think that they're all elaborations of generosity. Generosity is the first of them. And I like to think that I can rephrase each of the other of the paramitas as some sort of a gift, starting from the straightforward generosity of giving a gift, relinquishing something that someone else might need or use, to the great generosity of equanimity, the last of the paramitas, which is really relinquishing the attachment to how we would have wanted our lives to be in the recognition and the acceptance that this is the way they are. It really amounts to forgiving our lives. I think that each of the paramitas represents both a gift to others and a gift to ourselves. Generosity is usually the first of the paramitas in any list of them. And the Buddha said we ought to start in developing these, cultivating these characteristics with generosity. He said it was the easiest thing to do. He said everybody can give away something. Everybody ought to be able to find something that they could give away. And so normally we think about giving away stuff, giving away things, giving away something that we see we don't need. 
The gift of it, obviously, is that someone else has something that they might need or like, and we have the gift of uh, the delight that they have in receiving the gift. We also have the gift of the pleasure of non-greed. I was also thinking today about one of the other things that we give people as a gift of generosity is the gift of an open mind, uh, not opinionated mind. I was thinking about what Jack said last night about uh, uh, the line of people go around, people with opinions go around bothering each other. I was thinking about how pleasant we make ourselves for other people if we stop going around bothering them with our opinions. It's also a lot more pleasant for ourselves because if we stop going around bothering ourselves with our opinions, we can be quite present to people without preparing a rebuttal every time that they say something. My friend David Zeller, who uh, was a wonderful teacher, years ago taught me a secret mantra. He said, anyone in a teaching position ought to do this special secret mantra every day for 10 minutes. This is the mantra. I could be wrong. <laughs> Have you ever been wrong? Morality is the second of the paramitas. In the text, its uh, quality is uh, listed as composing. We become composed when we live our lives in a moral way, when we behave ourselves, when we are ethical and correct in our dealings with people. When we are moral, we give people the gift of safety. When we are moral, we give ourselves the gift of blamelessness and happiness. At the end of a precept recitation, when people take formal precepts, they say, may these precepts be a cause for happiness. We had such a lesson of that last night when that incident happened. And it was so clear that when something happens like that and people break in, it gives us such a sense of unsafety and such a sense of violation and discomfort. And I thought as well, and I'm sure you did too, about the sense of alarm that the folks who did it must have had as well. Everybody had a really uncomposed, difficult mind state. We give ourselves and other people a gift when we are moral. Two of the paramitas that are usually, that are in fact listed separately, but which I think go very closely together, are uh, renunciation and patience. In classical texts, the sense of renunciation is renouncing sense pleasures. But for me, I resonate more with the sense of renunciation, not so much in giving up sensual pleasures in life, but giving up or trying to be alert to the tendencies of the heart, the instinctive tendencies of the heart, the impulsive tendencies of the heart toward both greed and aversion that might lead to unskillful actions. 
and that they go along with patience because when I can wait, renouncing the instinctive impulse to act, when I have the patience to wait, the possibility of some wiser formulation is available to me and wiser action is happening. I'll tell you a small story of that because I think it has really a meaning on a worldwide scale. I was uh, walking on the treadmill in my gym sometime this year. I don't know exactly the day, but I'm sure you'll remember it. I was walking on the treadmill watching CNN on the big screen in front of the treadmills as they have in my gym, listening to the news on my Walkman. And um, all of a sudden, they interrupted the broadcast with a news flash about a uh, bombing in Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem. And very closely thereafter, live coverage of the post-aftermath of the bombing and bodies and wounded people and dead people. I was very shocked and I would have been in any case shocked to see such a scene. And in fact, I have many friends in Jerusalem, so it's particularly personally shocking and alarming to me. And so I I soon left the gym and as it was, I was meeting a friend of mine. I had an appointment to meet a friend of mine. Uh, And so I went straight to that appointment, and when she arrived, I could see by her face that she had also seen the news. And she, like myself, shares both a kinship tie with Israel and has personal connections, friends and family there. And I said to her, do you hear the news? And she said, yes, I did. And I said, what did you think the first thing? What was your first thought? And she said, I felt outrage. I felt such anger. I thought to myself, this is too much. We need to bomb Damascus. And I said to her, I had the same thought. What happened next? She said, well, then I thought to myself, that's the wrong thought. That won't solve anything. I thought, I said, I thought the same. It's the impulsive thought of the mind. It's the instinctive thought. It's what happens when we get angry. We want to lash out. We want to respond. It's not the healthy thought. It doesn't help. We get startled. We react impulsively. Unless we think about it and wait. We're animals and we have nervous systems. We're not going to stop having nervous systems and kinship ties and preferences. We're not going to stop getting angry. We're not going to stop wanting. Somebody said to me this morning in an interview who had noticed that as she was practicing all of this week, things alarmed her and startled her. But they startled her in a place of more settled response. She said, the nervous system does what it does, and then the heart does what it needs to do. As a matter of fact, in the middle of the interview, I said, uh, just a minute, I need to write that down, and I'll say it tonight, because it was really the best way I could have possibly said it. 
the gift that we give each other, that we give ourselves with renunciation and with patience is the gift of peace. The gift of truthfulness, I think, is multi-leveled. It's an enormous gift. On the most basic level, when we don't deceive ourselves and we don't deceive other people, we're tremendously helpful. We really give people the most information they can have for how to change and how to grow. We don't complicate it by holding back information or by telling things that we see that they might be able to use. There's a wonderful piece of advice in uh, Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, and it has to do with what you should do if somebody injures your reputation, if somebody says something bad about you, if you hear that so-and-so said something bad about you and anger arises. Shanti Davis said, wait, you should have patience. Think about it. You should reflect thus. Is she right? If she is, you should be happy because this person has pointed out something that you could use to grow and change. It's a teacher for you. You should give them a gift or thank you them at least. Said, if they're not right, what's the problem? It's hard to do it, isn't it? <laughs> There's another level, though, to the gift of truth. I, I learned it a couple of years ago. I was in Aspen, <clears throat> in Colorado, in the summertime. My friend Elaine lives in Aspen in the summer, and so we were visiting and being with her quite a lot of the time. And uh, uh, Snowmass Abbey is uh, right outside of Aspen. Elaine goes there for uh, mass on those days a week that it's open to people outside the community. And she said, do you want to go? And I actually knew that one of the monks there is a monk who's done quite a lot of uh, mindfulness practice at Barry. Doesn't know, didn't know me, but I knew about him. So I said, sure, that'd be great. And so uh, she phoned up and she made arrangements for myself and for my husband and for my friend Stephen Mitchell and his wife Vicky and for herself, all to go on the following morning. And so the following morning at 6 o'clock, we all met at a prearranged place, but only three of us met because Stephen and Vicki, at the last minute, couldn't come. So the three of us went out to Snowmass Abbey, and uh, we were greeted in the anteroom by, uh, in fact, the very monk who I recognized from having sat with him in meditation halls over the years, as being the very monk I remembered who had practiced in Barry, He didn't know me. And so Elaine introduced us and she said, Father, this is my friend Sylvia Boerstein. And he said, hello, Sylvia, shook my hand, very happy to meet you. And he turned to my husband and he said, uh, and you must be Stephen Mitchell. And my husband said, no, I'm Seymour Boerstein. And he said, oh, I'm so disappointed. I was really looking forward to meeting Stephen Mitchell. So, at first, I was a little startled. But then I was actually very glad because right after that, we went in to the liturgy together. 
And this very monk was the celebrant for that morning. And the very same truthfulness and the very same lack of guile, the very same total unhidden presence that he brought to that introduction, he brought to his meeting with God as well. And I've gone to quite a lot of celebrations of Catholic liturgies. Many of my friends are uh, Catholic clergy. And never before have I felt quite so close to the sense of what was happening. I felt that because of his absence of guile, the sense of the divine came through him so clearly that I could feel it and participate it as well. So I had the feeling that another aspect of another part of the gift of truthfulness is the possibility of intimacy. I'll put two more together. There are two qualities of uh, character. One is energy and one is determination. We'll put them together um, because according to the text, spiritual urgency is the proximal cause for both of them arising. As we begin to see more and more how, what a dilemma this life is, how hard it is to be comfortable, that it's painful just by its very nature, and it's additionally painful every time we don't see clearly, every time we behave unskillfully, every time we complicate it with further tensions of clinging and aversion. The more we see that the only possibility for peace is surrender, is a non-adversarial relationship to life, an engaged, vigorous, non-adversarial relationship to life, the more determined we are to practice. I've heard the phrase, I think twice this week, someone mentioned the, the idea that we ought to practice as if our hair is on fire. It's a strong image, but actually it's one that I think about sometime. One that I've been telling people recently, I don't know whether I should say telling or confessing, but I've been telling people, they always laugh, that um, sometimes I sit down on my zafu and I say, I'm not getting up from here until I'm enlightened. You see, they laugh. It sounds like hubris, but I think to myself, why not? Why shouldn't I say that? First of all, there's a precedent in history. No one will give me points off for not getting it. No one will know. Well, you all know, but... Here's a story within a story. My friend Sharon uh, told me that when she went to uh, Burma to study metta for the first time with her teacher, Upandita, just when she was about to begin practicing, he said to her, so how do you think you're going to do on this metta practice? You're going to do well, you think? Or what do you think? And she thought, whoa, this must be a trick question. And I don't want to look too sure of myself. So she said to him, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll do well, but maybe I won't do well. 
And he said, why do you say that? That's a very bad attitude. You should say, I'm going to do great. Why not? I mean, why not start with confidence? What's the worst? It won't happen. I keep thinking we imagine that there's some cosmic mind reader that's going to punish us for hubris. I think it's a Western trait to think, uh, where do you get off saying this, or pride goeth before a fall, or something like that. Why not tell ourselves that? When I say to myself, I'm not getting off my zafu until I'm enlightened, I really mean business. I am serious. I do that when I am distraught, when I am beside myself, when I can't see at all, and I know it. What happens to me when I say that is I sit down with such determination. I know I'm not going to sit there forever, but I have absolute faith that moments of clarity and moments of wisdom, moments of understanding are available to us, not for the rest of my life, but at least a little bit. And they could happen now. And they can't happen, probably won't happen, unless I determine that they will. Don't sit down thinking, well, you never know. Why not? (laughs) Suppose we sat down every time and said, this might be the time. Suzuki Roshi in Beginner's Mind said, The first time you come to practice, you're all excited about it because you think, well, this is it. This might be the very practice that does it for me. And then you practice, and you do some zazen, and you think, well, this is nice, this is good. I didn't get entirely liberated, but it's good. I should probably do it. So then it is relegated into the same sort of good-for-me zone as a little bit of hatha yoga, a little bit of qigong, brushing the teeth. It's all good for you, taking the vitamins, But you never brush your teeth or take your vitamins with the thought that, oh, this time I'm going to get enlightened. But what if you thought you were? And you brought that piece of waked-up, investigative, excited mind to sitting rather than, oh, here I am again. Why not? The gift of energy and determination for the people around us and the people we meet and for ourselves, is the gift of confidence. Loving-kindness is the ninth of the paramitas, and equanimity is the tenth. I'll put them together as well, because I think when we see clearly how everything really is determined, how much everything is determined by everything that's ever happened, Really, it's a deep understanding of karma, and it enables us to forgive our lives and to forgive all beings, to give, forgive everyone in our lives. We give up resentment. We become friendly. A man, um, a, a man, a man I taught this very year. We'll call him John to protect his privacy. Told me this story. He said, um, this is the first retreat I've ever been on. This was the end of the retreat. 
He said, and for some reason of scheduling, I, he had seen other teachers throughout the retreat, so I saw him only at the end of two weeks. But he said, I really wanted to see you and I wanted to tell you this story. He said, um, this is the first retreat I've ever been on and uh, I didn't know what would happen, but this is what happened. Um, I managed, I, I got over a very traumatic event that happened to me about four years ago. I imagined it would happen, but I didn't know it. Something very terrible happened to me four years ago. It was so terrible, I couldn't think about it. I locked it away in the corner of my mind in a closet, and I never let it out. But I knew it was there, and every once in a while it would peek out of the closet and I would push it back in. But this is what happened. Um, I managed, I, I got over a very traumatic event that happened to me about four years ago. I imagined it would happen, but I didn't know it. Something very terrible happened to me four years ago. It was so terrible, I couldn't think about it. I locked it away in the corner of my mind in a closet, and I never let it out. But I knew it was there, and every once in a while it would peek out of the closet, and I would push it back in because I couldn't deal with it. But then I got here, and there was all this silence and all this space, and there it was coming out, and I figured, well, now's my chance. And he looked at me, and I knew he wanted, I thought he wanted to tell me the story, and I said, you want to tell me the story? And he said, yeah. He said, this is what happened. I was walking alone at night in uh, a neighborhood, perhaps unfamiliar to me, and probably my fault, I shouldn't have been there, it wasn't wise, but from out of the shadows, a young man jumped out, and, uh, menaced me, had a gun, and uh, held me up, and uh, shouted at me, and uh, of course I gave him my wallet right away, and actually I happened to have quite a lot of money with me, but I certainly gave him my wallet, but nevertheless he was very agitated. I could see clearly that he was high on drugs, and I couldn't connect with him, and he was agitated and jumping around, and pointing the gun at me and saying over and over and over again, I'm going to kill you. And I thought he would, and that he was getting ready to. And he was getting ready and getting ready, and then I'd stop him and I'd say, wait a minute, I think I have something else I can give you. And he said I would fish around my pot. I found my watch and I gave him my watch. And then again started, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you and it escalated again, and then I'd stop him, just when he looked ready to pull the trigger, and he'd stop, and I'd give him something else, I'd tell him something else. So the third time it happened, I said to him, looked at him directly, and I said, stop, think about it. I gave you quite a lot of money in that wallet. You did really well tonight. Your friends are going to be so proud of you, you did really, really well. You did tremendously well. Now go home. And he said the person put down the gun, put it away, turned around, and left. And he said, um, I've been frightened by that whole episode all this time. It was the biggest shock of my whole life. Those minutes where I thought I was going to die were tremendously traumatic. 
said, now that I sit here, and I, that story came up and played in my mind over and over and over again. And then one day, he said, just yesterday, day before yesterday, I had the thought, what he did to me, what he did, he did because he had his life. If he had my, had my life, he wouldn't have done it. And I stopped being angry at him. And I felt better. Everybody is who they are because of circumstances. All the circumstances, all of the circumstances, all the way back to the beginning of time. We have to stop people from harming, of course. We have to be the healing circumstances that shape the rest of their lives. Because those circumstances not only shape the rest of their lives, but they shape the rest of our lives as well. And they shape the lives of all the world. Although beings are n numberless, I vow to liberate them. Although suffering is endless, I vow to end it. What that means to me is that I dedicate myself to transformation, to impeccability. I dedicate myself to teaching it diligently, not only by what I say, but by how I am, what I do in the world. I need to be, and you need to be, we all need to be, examples for everyone that we meet. It's the same mandate for each of us. That's really the way we change the world. That's really the way we heal the planet. It's really what we're doing here. It's a little early, so I'd like us to do a metta together that's an unusual kind of a one. I think this is a metta that might heal the world. This is the image that I have. It's very hard to love all beings. They're numberless. It's hard to imagine where they are and what they are and what they do. It's hard to avoid the antipathy that comes up in the mind when we think about the people who really cause us pain or cause the world pain. I have a notion that we don't have to do that. We don't have to think about loving quite directly the people who cause us pain, cause the world pain. I hope that as our understanding matures, each of us will be able to hold them in compassion but the vigorous energy, the energy of loving, the energy of hopeful, excited benevolence is most easy when we think about the people that we really love.
our kin, our family, our community, our close connections. I have an idea that if the whole world only practiced loving vigorously, vigorously, vigorously the people that they know and love, that their hearts would be so buoyant from the loving. Their experience would be so wonderful from the loving that antipathy would get erased. The lists of us and them would get erased. The people that we don't like and we hold as other, we'd forget that. I have actually this image that if each of us stayed exactly where we were in the world, physically, and loved with all our might everyone that we knew and could name by name, and held in our minds and hearts the image or the hope that the whole world need not do anything more than that, love just the people that they easily love and did it so diligently. I have this visual image that we would pile up around us if I thought all my names, the names of many people, each time I say a name, inside or outside, I have the image that name drops like a leaf or a petal on the floor around me. And that Every single person that I mention, if they said the names of every single person that they loved, and if all those people said the names of every single person that they loved, and if everybody said the name of every single person that they loved, then the edges that we draw around countries and around communities would disappear because the petals and the leaves would accidentally cover up those lines that we've drawn in the sand, they're all imaginary anyway. That everybody's hearts would be so transformed by the pleasure of loving just who they really loved and knowing that those people love them. That we would for some time make a moratorium on on antipathy. And when we did, everyone's nervous system would relax. And everyone could look around and notice that everybody's a person. Everybody's a human being. Everybody, just like them, wants to be happy. And we can begin to take good care of each other. When I sat here the first evening, I looked out, and perhaps there are 10 or 20 people that I know well from other retreats. But a lot of people that I either know just a little bit or haven't met before. So now I know 40 people that I didn't know before. And I feel like I know all the people here because everybody here has the same story. We've shared this ideal and this work together. So we are relaxed and at ease in each other's company. If the whole world would relax while loving just the people they really loved, they might recognize that the people they haven't yet met are just like them. So this is the way we do this metta. We do this at Spirit Rock quite often. 
when we do our metta in this way, we don't make the phrases. We don't say, may you be peaceful or happy. We don't make the whole of the intention. We assume the intention is all of those wonderful things. We just make the list of people towards whom I intend. And so my list always begins Colin and Leah and Eric and Nathan and Grace and Harrison, because those are my six grandchildren in the order of their birth. And then I name all the other people in my family. So I have a, a liturgy. First I do all those people, then I do their parents, and then I do Seymour. And then I do my aunt and other people who are on my daily list. And the, then the list changes from day to day. And I love to do that this when I sit between my friends because I know that pretty soon after my private list, I will be saying, and Jack, and Liana, and Caroline, and John, and Joanne, and Mary, and Guy, and Carol, and certainly James, and Jane, and Adam, and each time I say a name, I remember somebody else. And while I'm saying that, Jack will be saying, and Sylvia, and James. And you keep hearing names coming back and forth. And by and by, Jack may say, George. I don't know what George Jack knows, but I know a George. So <laughs> when I hear Jack say, George, I oh, George, I forgot my George. So then I say George, and he might be thinking some other George, but I'm thinking this George. And then maybe John will say Barbara, or Mary, or somebody else, or Martha. And then I'll, oh, I have a Martha, I'll say Martha. And then I'll say Joel, and then I'll say this, and then I'll say that. Because if I say them loud enough, not to overwhelm my neighbor, but loud enough for my neighbor to use my names as well. We can go for quite a long time. <laughs> so, ready? Take a breath. Close your eyes, relax, have a good time. Don't get all choked up or worried if you suddenly can't remember another name. Wait, suddenly the person next to you will say Trevor or Joyce or, and you'll say, oh, I have a Trevor and I have a Joyce. We'll do it for a little while. It's wonderful. Imagine as we do this that the whole world sits down with us and does it together. Take a breath. <sighs> May all the beings that we're about to name be safe and happy. May they be healthy. May they live with ease. And Colin. Yeah. And Nathan. And Carolyn. And Joyce. And Harrison. And Rachel. And Tess. And Leo. Sally and Andrew and, and Caroline and, and Linda 
and David and Peggy and Maya and Dalman and Eve and Sandy and Sarah and Sheila and Jeff and Jane and Joanna and Adam and Maynard and Mark and Robert and Mike and Alejandro and Michael and Arturo and Amy and Roberto and Malidoma and Sobonfu and Anki and Mat and Anika and Jamnian and Sumedo and Amaro and Sumedo and Amaro and Stephen and Ramdas and Andrea and Jai Joanna and Miles, Maynard, Miriam, and Sharon and Eugenia, and, and Christina Henry, and Christopher, and Sharon and Mark, and Joseph, and Charlie, Christina and Christopher, and Mark, and Steve and, and Michelle, and, and Steve and Michelle, Kamala, and Kamala, and Steve, and Mitzi, and Charlotte. And Deborah. And George and Julie and George and, and Julie and Sophie and Sophie <laughs> and Sarah and Peter and Bernard and Christine and Philip and, and David Philip. And, and Gina and Gina and Liana and Louise and Larry and Galena and Anne and Sarah and Michael and Al and Orion and Edwin and Ralph and Sally and and Megan Judy and Meg Judy and Meg and Isabel and Meg and Judy and John and Doug all the rest of them.
May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings live with ease. Thank you. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on 42398. It is an offering of Dharma Seed. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 23, 1998. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.